Well, good morning. Um, I'm glad to see you all here this morning. My name is Bert Wallace. I'm one of the elders here at Grace, and um, one of the things that elders are called to do is teach. Uh, I, am a, I am a teacher. I'm a professor at Campbell, uh, but I do I place a little more weight on what I'm doing this morning than, you know, teaching about the ancient Greeks and what they did. Uh, that's, it's important, but not as important as what we're talking about today. Um, I'm a, I also would like to say Happy Father's Day. Uh, I'm a father myself. Happy Father's Day to the fathers in here, but I would also say buckle up, uh, because the passage that we're going to be reading today is um, a fantastic example of how not to be a husband or father. Um, we're we're going to be talking today about um, Genesis chapter 38, which is a kind of a jarring uh, insertion into the story of Joseph. Um, it kind of interrupts it, and um, I'm going to talk some more about that later. I'm going to read a little bit of the the Joseph story to kind of tell us where we are in that story, and then the beginning of the Judah and Tamar incident, we'll call it. Um, so if you would uh, please rise as I read uh, from Genesis for us this morning. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Then they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether or not it is your son's robe. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put his sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Moving on to chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hera. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you join me for a moment of prayer. Lord, just please bless this time together today. I just pray you'd be with me as I speak from your word, and that you would just move in our hearts and teach us what you would have to learn today. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So what's the, the point of this, this story that gets inserted? Uh, I, as I've said, uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, debate about this, commentary about this from multiple comment, commentators that I've looked at. Um, some have argued that it was a later insertion into the story, kind of an awkward dropping into the story by a, a few, uh, an editor at some point in the future. 
from when the original story was written. Um, I'll agree with Kent Hughes. That's, that's a commentator that we've been using pretty extensively as we study Genesis. And he really makes the argument and reports that lots of scholars today think that this story was in the original telling and that it has a very special purpose uh, for being there. Um, I'm going to suggest that there are four significant reasons that this story, this rather uh, irreverent and uh, unpleasant story, is in, uh, inserted into this point in the Joseph narrative. And the first is kind of a, a literary function. It kind of indicates the passage of time uh, through between the time when Joseph was uh, sold into slavery and then the time when we pick up with him some years later um, in Potiphar's household. So there's kind of a literary function there. And another literary function is that it points up Joseph's chastity, which we're going to see in the next uh, incident where Joseph has his uh, run-in with Potiphar's wife. Here we have a, a negative contrasting example of a lack of chastity in the life of Judah particularly. Um, on a grander scale, it kind of provides a parallel to other events in the larger saga of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit. And, but then ultimately, and I think most importantly, it points to the lineage of Christ. It shows us the human uh, line that Jesus came, Jesus came from, and I'm going to talk about that later, why I think it's significant that we see this particular ancestor of, of Jesus. Um, I'm calling the sermon uh, the God who accomplishes his will through sinful lives. Uh, he, we can all relate to that, right? It doesn't, God in, in a mysterious way uses uh, sin and the, the fallen world that we live in to accomplish his purposes. Uh, so I hope that as we go, we'll, we'll see that. So um, I want to, in the, in the first point, as I, as I talk about how this past, this Scripture shows the passage of time. Um, I'm going to just kind of hit on the highlights of the whole story. I'm not going to read the entire story, the entire chapter to us, but I'll read portions of it as we go along. Um, we don't know the exact amount of time that elapses between um, either between the time that Joseph was sold into slavery or the time when the ne- that we next see him when he's dealing with Potiphar's wife. We also don't exactly know what it means in verse 1 or how much time exactly it is when it says it happened at that time. Um, if you look at the different dates and ages and you look forward in the, in the book to how old people were when certain things happened and so forth, um, it's about 20 to 25 years probably, the, the time between... Uh, the time that elapses for this story to happen, all the things that happen in the Judah and Tamar story. And, and it's, that's enough time uh, for everything to happen. People got married somewhat younger uh, then, so we're probably talking like, you know, 15 or so, age 15 or so, when these boys would be getting married or who we would now call boys. Um, and so there's enough time for these uh, people to be born, raised up, marry, have children, and so forth. Um, the, the outline of the story is this. Uh, First kind of problem we see really is in the very beginning in that first verse where Judah goes down into Canaan and uh, marries a Canaanite woman, which he is specifically not supposed to do, but he does it anyway. Um, We don't even know the name of this woman. Uh, She's the daughter of Shua. We don't know her name. Um, But that's the the first problem. I'm I'm actually going to talk about that a little more in a a few minutes. Um, But out of this marriage, which was not who he was supposed to marry, or the kind of person he was supposed to marry, 
um, three children are produced, uh, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Um, two of these, by the time we go through the story, have reached marriageable age, which again is maybe around 15. One of them is not old enough to be married yet, the last one, Shelah, uh, but he's, he'll be dealt with later. Um, so the firstborn, Ur, we don't really know anything about him except that he, he's the firstborn of Judah. He marries Tamar. Um, and he, all we know about him is a very brief phrase, he was wicked, and so the Lord killed him. Um, that's really all we know about that. Uh, it is likely that this wickedness was open and uh, known by people. It, it, unlikely was just some sort of secret struggle of sin that he had, you know. Um, it was something big, something that uh, the Lord dealt with in a very specific way. Um, so next comes Onan, right? And he is uh, going to get married to Tamar to produce an heir in the name of Ur. Now, this is an example of leveret marriage, um, which we read about in Deuteronomy. I'm just going to read this to us real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, the Lord says to Moses, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. There's a little bit more after that, but that's the, the gist of it. So that's fine. That's leveret marriage. But what's... There's a little bit of a discrepancy here in what I just read and what's going on in Genesis. Um, and that is that this is, that law was passed down significantly later than uh, this leveret marriage is taking place. So that practice was already going on amongst the people in that part of the world before the Lord uh, handed down the law t- to Moses. Um, it's interesting that Ur, though he was wicked and probably known to be wicked, um, was honored by his family. We need to preserve his name. You know, we need to do this, this uh, practice and let his, uh, his name be continued. Uh, so, um, uh, the uh, next son is Onan, right? And, and so, to, in order to do this, they, they send him in to be married to her. Um, he is not um, interested in that. And uh, though that the, the Deuteronomy goes on again sometime later uh, to say, and if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, uh, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Uh, it goes on, the elders are to call him up and basically disgrace him you know, for refusing to do this. So, Again, that law was handed down much later, but indeed Onan refuses to do this. Now, this is the uh, probably the trickiest part of the of the message to talk about here. Um, I'm gonna I don't have it up on the screen. I'm gonna read uh, actually from the King James just because I like the language of that better, and it's what people are f- uh, kind of familiar with, I think, with this story. Judah says to Onan again. This is from chapter 38 in Genesis. Go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew the seed should not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground lest he should give seed to his brother. Um, I'm going to kind of quote John Calvin here. I looked at Calvin's commentary on this when he says, um, in dealing with this particular uh, part of the passage, I will contend myself with briefly mentioning this as far as the sense of shame allows. Um, uh, The sin of Onan... uh, 
historically uh, is misunderstood, I think. The sin of Onan is uh, an, an intense self-interest, a refusal to honor his father's wishes, uh, to put his own uh, uh, needs, his own uh, interest ahead of those of his family. Because he knows that the child, any child, the first child born of this union is not going to be his or not be legally considered his. So he does what he needs to do to make sure there's no child. And um, that dishonoring of his family, that refusal to, to, to obey uh, his father and bend to the will of his father is what causes him to be put to death. Um, it's no, no other sin that causes him to be put to death other than that very deliberate and ongoing sin. Um, it's uh, Derek uh, Kinder, whose commentary looked at, talks about that the, the verb is translated when... Uh, really should be whenever, implying that this was an ongoing thing. This was not just a one-time occurrence of refusing to uh, impregnate his wife, but an ongoing uh, deliberate attempt to not do that. And so ultimately, he is also put to death by the Lord. Stern uh, warning. Uh, the Lord, I, I often have thought that, you know, I've been very happy to go through Genesis the way we've been doing for the past several months, because in the past, when I have attempted to read the Bible straight through, just, just in order from Genesis through, um, it, the Old Testament, at least in the past to me, got is very difficult because it's harsh, and, you know, you mess up, you're likely to just get struck down. You know, God just sort of shows up and knocks you down. Um, it, it's a cold and harsh world, and I'm so thankful to be born uh, on the other side of the cross and not having to think about someday, you know, something will happen and we will be redeemed of our sins, but that has already happened. Thanks be to God that that's true. Um, In the Old Testament, it was a lot harsher time. Um, Not surprisingly, after the second son dies, Onan gets a little scared, and even though he knows that he should marry his third son to this woman, he kind of, well, he kind of uses that as an excuse. He puts her aside and says, you just kind of hang out until... Uh, my other son is old enough to get married. Now, again, we're not quite sure how much time that would be, but he's probably getting kind of close to being old enough to get married. Um, so he puts her aside. It's more likely, though, that he was just sort of trying to permanently sidetrack her. Maybe he thought of her as bad luck. Um, we actually, we'll talk about uh, his sort of pagan tendencies in a few minutes, but um, he may have thought that she had something about her, although it had nothing to do with her, uh, her both of those uh, sons dying. Uh, Verse 11 tells us that he feared that uh, Shelah would die like his brothers died, so he puts Tamar aside, essentially living as a permanent widow, which is not a great position uh, in the ancient uh, Middle East. Um, Eventually, his own wife dies. Um, Judah's unnamed wife dies. And then I'm going to talk about this more in a future, in a a point in a few minutes, but um, he, he is comforted. Um, which is referring to a ritual week-long period of mourning. Um, And after that week-long period, uh, he goes out to the sheep shearing festival, which is a a festival that involved travel. Uh, It was a time of drunkenness and revelry. It was a sort of a harvest fertility type festival. Again, I'm going to get to that a little later. But Matthew Henry, uh, talking about this, says that when men are fed to the full, the rains are apt to be let loose. Uh, the the reins are let loose uh, when Judah goes up to the sheep shearing festival. Um, and uh, he uh, 
remember, his wife has just died, <laughs> certainly from a modern perspective, and I would say from a perspective of that time too, it's, it's literally just happened. This is not a year later. I mean, this is maybe a week after his wife has died. He needs some uh, female comfort, and he sees a prostitute, and he picks her up. Uh, we're going to talk more about this later, but of course, uh, what, we, what we know is that the pro- it's, it's in fact Tamar uh, who has disguised herself as a prostitute, um, knowing that, uh, or at least having a good sense that Ju- Judah could be lured in that way. Um, it's interesting that what she is doing is unlike Judah's actions. She's motivated uh, not by lust or fleshly desire, but probably by the desire to produce an heir. Uh, some of the commentators have even suggested, I don't see a whole lot of uh, strength, a biblical support for this, but it's certainly an interesting speculation that maybe she... Uh, knew about the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob about perpetuating the line and the the promise of of descendants and so wanted to be a part of that. Who who knows, but she certainly didn't want to just kind of live her life out as a permanent widow. Um, Her sin of deception and this incestuous union that she uh, tricks Judah into participating in is in in a certain sense more excusable, more understandable than uh, Judah's strictly uh, fleshly-driven sins. Um, So Judah goes into her. He uh, pledges a a goat in payment for her services. I'm going to talk about the goat in a little bit. Um, He doesn't have a goat with him, so he leaves uh, some uh, items in pawn uh, for the goat uh, which are very valuable items. It's, a, it's what is sometimes thought of as a signet ring, but it's actually probably not a ring, but rather a, um, a cylindrical uh, clay seal that he wore around his neck and a staff, a carved staff that would have been identified with him. He leaves those things in pledge. Um, after he goes away, he sends the goat. Uh, the Tamar is nowhere to be found. Nobody seems to have ever heard of her, uh, this mysterious uh, woman. And so um, in verse 23, he says to his friend, his old friend Hira, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. Um, He's not concerned really with anything other than his own possible humiliation. Um, So he's like, fine, just let her keep it. Um, Eventually, Tamar is revealed to be pregnant. Uh, When Judah hears about this, what's his reaction? He says, bring her out and let her be burned. Uh, completely un, uh, not thinking about his own sins, or at least if he's thinking about them, he's not saying anything about them. Um, probably that means to be killed. It's possible that it, uh, it means to be branded uh, as a harlot. Uh, but it, I think it's more likely, and more commentators talk about it, it's to, literally to be killed. Um, she comes out. She reveals his items, which only belong to him. Uh, it's like in a play, right? It's just a perfect, oh, look, who, 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 belong, who owns these things? He, he sees them. There's no way he can deny it. Um, and his sort of famous quote when he sees these things is, she is more righteous than I. Um, and uh, it's sort of a beginning of a new Judah that as we see, we're going to see later in the Joseph story, Judah is later in his later life revealed to be a much more righteous person. And then he has revealed himself thus far. Uh, it's also interesting to note that he does not mention any punishment for himself. Uh, you know, when he, when he says, she's pregnant, let her be burned. Who made her pregnant? It was you. Oh, well, I guess it's 
it's okay. You know, she just, that's, that's, she's better than I am, you know. Uh, Calvin says, man, this is so true. They who are rigid in censuring others are much more pliant in forgiving themselves. Um, that I just find that to be so true. It just speaks to my own heart. Just the idea of, I'm not going to condemn others. I'm going to say myself, I can be so harsh about things, but then when I fall prey to those same things, I'm just like, well, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that was pretty bad. I shouldn't do that anymore. Um, that's what Judah does. So uh, she's pregnant. He doesn't, and also it's interesting that uh, Judah, the verse tells us that he, he, know, he does not know her any further. He doesn't certainly continue to have relations with her once she reveals who she is and that she's pregnant. Um, and then several months after that, some uh, children are born, twins, as a result of this union. Um, and I'm just going to read this to us real quickly. This is the very end of chapter 38, starting in verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. And afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So uh, the twins are born. Again, I'm going to mention this later, the parallel there with the twins. So all this, you know, took a fair amount of time. The marriages, the deaths, the, um, the pregnancy, children being born and uh, conceived and born and so forth. All this has happened in the 20, maybe 25 years where Joseph has been uh, in captivity. Um, and we're about to see his uh, chastity tested. That's kind of the next, the next point of the sermon is that it points up Joseph's chastity uh, by showing us this negative example. Um, the first hint that we get of um, Judah's uh, lack of chastity is really at the very beginning of the chapter. Um, it's very bluntly stated. He saw a certain uh, daughter of a certain Canaanite, and he took her and went into her. You know, it's a very brutal kind of uh, language that's just to the point, right? And that's, that's uh, Judah continues to have those kind of problems. There are various exploits of his sons, um, and then uh, after, just very shortly after his wife dies, you know, he goes off to the hootenanny. Uh, you know, he just is going to party at this harvest festival. Um, and uh, Tamar learns of this. He sees her thinking it's a, a prostitute uh, and turns aside uh, and says, come, let me come into you. Of course, not knowing who she is, but it's pointing up his lack of self-control, chastity, his indulgence of the flesh. Another interesting point of this is that if you, if you read the language in the original, he believes her to be a, a cult, a pagan cult prostitute, uh, not just your run-of-the-mill prostitute, if you will, but rather a prostitute who uh, you go to her in order to promote fertility and promote a good harvest and so forth. So not only is he indulging his flesh, but he is knowingly participating in a pagan, a, a perverse pagan ritual, telling us a good bit about Judah and his uh, self-control or lack thereof. Um, he, um, we've already gone over what, what goes on there. She disappears after the fact. Um, and interestingly, she uses um, items of clothing to identify him 
uh, after the fact, you know, when, when, it, when it all comes to light. Um, that's an interesting parallel. I'm going to talk about some more parallels later, but with how Joseph was falsely identified uh, to his father uh, with clothing that could be identified as his own clothing, um, that Judah was a, a part of that whole situation. Um, now, Judah does, as I've said, he, he, he owns up to it um, somewhat weakly, but he does. Um, he says, she is more righteous than I since, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. So he, you know, he acknowledges this, this is my fault. Um, and he does not know her again. Uh, that's something, at least, right, that he doesn't do that. Um, I wanted to, I, had, I found a reference that I wanted to just read to us. This is in Hosea, talking about this kind of activity, <laughs> being out on the road and, and uh, what goes on on the road. Um, this is from Hosea chapter 4. Hosea tells us, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with the prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Uh, this kind of behavior is not, uh, boys will be boys, doesn't cut it. Um, th- this is, reflects a lack of understanding about who God is, who we are in God. And this kind of activity is unacceptable. And I guess we know that kind of on a surface level, but we still seem to have this, some of us anyway, seem to have kind of a boys will be boys sort of a attitude. Interestingly, the prophet Hosea here excuses the women uh, more than the men. I, I had to have a, a brief conversation with my son. I mean, he was just reporting something that someone else had said to him, but the, the old uh, thing that some men try to use about Eve being the, the one who sinned. Uh, and so, you know, she's the one who kind of caused all our problems. And that, you know, I had to sort of correct him on that and talk to him about how the, you know, the, one of the major sins there is Adam not fulfilling his role as a husband, not being a man. Uh, and this is, you know, this kind of activity in a fallen, broken worldview is, is macho and manly, but in fact is the opposite of, of true manhood. Um, again, Judah does own up at least, and, and, and when we see him later, and I'm not going to talk about this today, but as we go, continue to go through the chapter, we're going to see that he uh, reforms, for lack of a better word. He, he becomes righteous and offers himself in pledge for Benjamin, for example, when they're down in, in Egypt and so forth. Um, so, you know, we, and we do see, as uh, referring to Egypt, we do see Joseph's chastity uh, being tested. He's falsely accused, again, using an identifying garment. Uh, he is not uh, doing what he's accused of doing, but he's identified by, look, I have his garment. He left his garment behind. Um, it's interesting, these parallels, there's really numerous parallels between uh, the Judah story and the larger story of all the patriarchs um, going all the way back. And I'm going to kind of do a little loop here for a few minutes. I'm going to talk about these people a couple of times. But with these parallels, um, Abraham, you know, the back generations before, um, he has an ill-advised marriage to a, to a or a, at least a uh, union with a Gentile woman, Hagar. Uh, and that comes from him also not standing up to his wife, um, much like uh, we see in the earlier story. Um, Hagar um, is sort of the wronged woman, much like Tagar, Tamar in the situation. 
um, and she is blessed. You know, she's not condemned uh, in the story. Uh, Isaac, Abraham's son Isaac, um, he has twins, you know, just, just like in the Judah story. Um, the, the twins are born, they, they're contending in the womb. Uh, we have the same situation of the, the younger twin sort of usurping the older twin. Um, the, uh, the scarlet thread is an interesting uh, detail there where just to try to keep things straight, the midwife ties a, ties a scarlet thread around uh, the first one that seems to be coming out, but then the other one kind of shoves ahead and muscles through and, and makes a breach uh, and gets out first. Um, that's Perez, who is ultimately the ancestor of Jesus. Um, I didn't know where else to put this, but it's interesting that the scarlet thread, can you think of another time we see a scarlet thread or cord with, with Rahab, right, who we're going to talk about later. Rahab ties a scarlet cord in her window to, to uh, signal the, spy, the, the attacking army not to, not to kill her. Interesting. Um, Jacob and Esau, uh, of course, I've, I've just already been mentioning them. They, they are uh, the twins uh, born of this, that union parallel with Perez and Zerah uh, um, who uh, fight with each other, don't get along with each other. Um, and again, I didn't quite know where to put this, but I'm just, I've gotten very intrigued with the goats. There's these goats in the, in the story, you know. Now these are, um, you know, it's a, it's a nomadic people, a shepherding people. Um, there's, there's a lot of talk about sheep. Um, uh, but goats specifically uh, play a lot in this larger epic story. Um, Rebecca and Jacob uh, deceive, uh, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, de- deceive uh, Isaac uh, and Esau uh, with a goat skin. You know, they, they disguise Jacob to, to be like Esau by putting the goat uh, skin on his, on his arms uh, for the blind Isaac to, to feel. Um, very interesting. Uh, Joseph's robe is stained with blood from a goat that is slaughtered, and then believe you know they show it and say, "Look, your son has been slaughtered." Judah uh, offers a, a goat in sacrifice, not in sacrifice, but in, in payment to uh, Tamar. So there's all this use of, of goats, uh, and of course we do see goats a lot through Scripture. Um, you know, we later hear about the separating the sheep from the goats, and there, there, there's a lot of parallels there. And again, this is almost a, a literary function of of the uh, of this this tale of Judah and Tamar is how all kinds of parallels occur between um, what has come before. There's a lot of, of uh, repetition, a lot of uh, pointing up of very specific themes using these elements like goats, like different items of clothing used to identify people. All those things. Um, but I'm going to suggest that really the main point of the story uh, is that Christ's lineage is presented to us, or you know, the, the line of Christ is, is shown uh, to us. It goes through Judah, uh, not through Joseph, not through uh, the firstborn, which is Reuben. We'll talk, I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. But through Judah to Perez who was the firstborn, uh, not the firstborn either of Judah. Um, the uh, Matthew Henry, uh, who I looked at a lot for this, uh, has a, a really good quote talking about um, the po- this point here. God will show that his choice is of grace and not of merit, and that Christ came into the world to serve sinners, even the chief, 
and is not ashamed to be allied to them. Praise God that he is not ashamed to be allied with sinners. Um, Also, that the worth and worthiness of Jesus Christ are personal to himself and not derived from his ancestors. Heaven help us, there is a lot of shame and dishonor among the ancestors of Christ. Um, It's his own worthiness that makes him uh, our savior. Uh, I'm going to, and again, I'm going to get to that a little more in a few minutes. Um, In the line of Christ, in in Matthew's, uh, uh, the gospel of Matthew's uh, lineage of Christ, um, there are a total of five uh, women mentioned, uh, four aside from Mary. There are four female ancestors mentioned aside from Mary. And uh, of course, their husbands are mentioned as well, but not all, of course, the wives are mentioned. Let's talk about those four women in the line of Christ, sort of going in in reverse order. The first is Bathsheba, uh, who is uh, presented in the the, uh, lineage or in the genealogy in Matthew as the wife of Uriah. Um, uh, You know, how did that union occur with David? Through adultery and murder. Um, uh, She was also a Gentile, a Hittite, Um, And yet through this awful, sinful union between David and Bathsheba, ultimately comes Jesus. Um, The the next woman is Ruth. Um, Ruth is also a Gentile from Moab. And we talked, you may remember, when we talked about some time ago, where the Moabites come from. They came from Lot and his incestuous uh, relations with his daughters. Uh, the one child being born named Moab, who, came, who became the father of the Moabites. Um, Ruth is um, married to her husband, Boaz, via this leveret marriage practice. So there's an interesting parallel there. Um, something also, much like in the Tamar story, that the actual uh, kinsman redeemer of Ruth did not want to do it. He, he, was, he went through that process, which I didn't go into in detail, of going before the gates and saying, okay, I'm not going to do this. And you take your sandal off and throw it and all kinds of things happen. Uh, but that was very, very similar. He doesn't do it. And then Boaz is able to claim her. That's a, a beautiful love story, the story of, of Ruth. Um, that's an example of that leveret, leveret process being very properly conducted and wonderfully conducted. Um, then we have Rahab, who we already mentioned. Um, she saved... This used to always puzzle me a lot as a kid. She saved the spies in Jericho. How'd she save them? By lying. She lies and says, oh, I don't know where they are. I haven't seen them. In fact, they're hiding uh, in her house. Um, and then, as I've already mentioned, she, she, they, they bless her for that action. And they say, we will save you. Hang this scarlet cord in your window, and we will not uh, destroy you when we come to destroy the city. And they are true to that word. They... She is brought out in her family safely. And, then, and she was a, also a Gentile and also a prostitute. Right? Look, look at all these, these colorful characters, to put it mildly, uh, in Jesus' uh, history. Um, we don't know really anything about her after that, uh, but she got married and, and had children. Um, and then the fourth woman that's mentioned is Tamar, who we've been talking about, another Gentile. Um, really pointing up the idea that Christ is for, the, he came to save the world, 
that which means Jews and Gentiles. Not every single person in the world, but every type of person in the world. He's not unique to the Jews. Um, he's for everybody. There are Gentiles in his family tree, lots of them. Um, she, she used deception and incest to provoke, to produce an heir. Um, uh, and yet she's declared righteous by Judah. Um, all four of these women have a very unique place in biblical history and in Jesus' lineage specifically. Um, Victor Hamilton, I'm going to read, it's not going to be on the screen, but I want to read a, a, a somewhat long quote from Victor Hamilton's commentary on Genesis about this particular point. Uh, in Matthew, he says, Matthew has included these four women to provide an illustration of Jesus' power to save sinners and to show that God's purpose for the Davidic line was achieved despite human sin. I might even add through human sin. That gets a little scary to talk about. Um, He goes on to say, each of these four women had a highly irregular and potentially scandalous marital union. Nevertheless, uh, these unions were by God's providence, links in the clan of the Messiah. Accordingly, each of them prepares the way for Mary, the fifth woman in the uh, lineage, whose marital situation is also peculiar, given that she is pregnant but has not had sexual relations with her betrothed husband. Thus, the inclusion of the likes of Tamar in this family tree, on the one hand, foreshadows the circumstances of the birth of Christ, and on the other hand, blunts any attack on Mary. God had worked his will in the midst of whispers of scandal. Um, So there's our women for us in the lineage. Let's talk about some of the men in the line of Christ. Obviously, there's a a whole uh, raft of them listed. I want to talk about some that I've already talked about. But talk about their, uh, their problems. Think about all the sins, all the be- wrong choices that ultimately led to the birth of Christ. Start with Abraham. Um, as I've already mentioned, he goes in to um, his uh, wife's servant, not being a man of the family, not taking charge, but listening to his wife's bad advice to him. Uh, he has a son through that union who would legally be considered his firstborn son, but ultimately he doesn't give his blessing to his actual and legal firstborn son, which he was born out of a sinful usurpation of God's plan. Um, it shows a lack of trust. Jealousy plays a part there. Um, his son, that is not his firstborn son, but that continues the line, is Isaac. And Isaac also doesn't give the blessing to his actual and legal firstborn son, Esau. This is because of a controlling wife, again, or at least in part because of a controlling wife. Um, Also because of a a firstborn son, Esau, who didn't have any self-control, despised his own birthright. Um, His secondborn son, who came out grasping his brother's heel, which, uh, as we've talked about, is is a metaphor in the Hebrew for being a liar, a deceiver, crafty. Uh, he participates in this uh, deception to gain the birthright. So here we have favoritism, lying, lack of trust, all playing in Isaac becoming the, the carrier of the line. Then comes Jacob. Um, he has uh, sons by four different women, at least. Um, the uh, firstborn son... 
uh, comes from a union that was deceptive, right? He's, he's cheated and marries the wrong woman uh, and has children by this woman, uh, children then also by other servants and his second wife, the sister of his first wife. Um, ultimately, his first three sons, all by his first wife, who was someone he married uh, as an act of deception. But all three of his first three sons lose the blessing because of sinful behavior on their part. Reuben is his firstborn son. Um, He ultimately has uh, relations with one of his father's concubines, uh, totally disrespecting and humiliating his father. He loses his inheritance ultimately over that. His next two sons, Simeon, Levi, they are involved in another very unseemly episode where one of their sisters uh, is violated. They, uh, the, the clan that is involved in the violation of Dinah uh, basically says, well, look, the boy wants to marry her. Can we just marry her? We'll agree to, to become, uh, you know, worshipers of Jehovah. They're all circumcised, but it's all a trick so that Simeon and Levi and others can go in and slaughter all the men when they're incapacitated, which they do. They're men of blood. Uh, They lose the birthright. It ultimately goes to his firstborn, or excuse me, his fourthborn son, Judah. Uh, Judah is the fourthborn of Jacob. And we've been going over his problems, you know, maybe in 1,000, 2,000 years, somebody will be going over all my problems. Um, But... uh, you know, he, he involves himself in a sinful union to a Canaanite woman. Um, his firstborn sons are, are killed because of wickedness. Um, finally, ultimately, the heir is produced through deception and incest. Um, and uh, Perez, who is the sort of usurping twin, you know, who shoves his way out first to become the firstborn um, he uh, shows a strong willfulness and uh, uh, ultimately becomes the ancestor of the Messiah. And, and this is not in the direct line, but just a, a sort of a side note. His, uh, Perez's great-grandson uh, is Achan, known as the Troubler of Israel, who uh, in, in First Chronicles, uh, we learn about him, he uh, disobeys the Lord and keeps some devoted some things that were supposed to be devoted to the Lord for destruction in a land that they were raiding for himself and ultimately causes massive problems for Israel and, and goes down in history. Mainly what we know about him is that he was the troubler of Israel and he's on down the line. Now, he, again, he's not in Christ's direct line, but he's a, a result of, of all this stuff. Um, so we have uh, multiple... Uh, reasons to uh, think about this story and, you know, what's the point of this story in the Joseph story. Um, I'm going to read for us from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. For it was fitting that he, that is God, for whom, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, 
that is Christ, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Amen. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children uh, that God has given to me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, he that is Jesus, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's, that's us, church. That's not just uh, the Jews anymore. Uh, but we are the spiritual uh, offspring of Abraham. Uh, Christ is, is both not like us and like us. Uh, that, that is the miracle. I, and I, I'm always a little hesitant to say things like this, but I think that's relatively unique, perhaps entirely unique in world religions, that the God-man, uh, Jesus is not just a God who sort of took on the shape of a human and came down and kind of pretended to be a human. Uh, he was a human. But he's also not just a human teacher, not just, uh, you know, a Gandhi that comes along and says, hey, everybody, you know, be nice and get along with each other. Um, he's, he's both. He is the God-man. He, and only through that can he know, uh, fully know, our, our sufferings. He comes from a, the line that we've been talking about. Um, and the story of Judah and Tamar makes all this clear. I mean, it's, it's just very clear to me why this story is there. It doesn't seem like an awkward insertion by a later editor, uh, but rather a very deliberate point of showing us the line that Christ came from, a line of whoremongers and liars and prostitutes and murderers. Um, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Some of you know this. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Uh, That is why we can read about people like Judah, fallen, sinful Judah, Uh, And Tamar, the wronged woman who uh, uh, did what she felt she had to do, not fully trusting in the Lord. Because if we fully trust in the Lord, we won't resort to to sin and deception. Uh, But despite that, through that, God accomplished his will. Um, Let me close with another quote from John Calvin. I'm in a little bit of danger of uh, idolizing John Calvin, so I want to avoid doing that. But I I do find his uh, his work very important. And um, he says to us in his commentary on this that it was fitting 
that the race from which he sprang, that is Jesus, should be dishonored by reproaches, that we, being content with him alone, might seek nothing besides him. Now, that's not scripture, people. Don't, don't mistake Calvin or any commentator for scripture. But uh, that's, that's what it's about. That is that only through Christ, not through our own heritage, not through our own um, uh, efforts, can we achieve anything. Um, only through Christ and everything that he did and everything that he was, which is pointed to very specifically by this story, can we, can we hope, do we have any hope at all? Um, once again from Philippians. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God accomplishes his will through our sinful lives. He chooses to do it that way. I don't know why he chooses to do it that way. Uh, it, do, it certainly doesn't mean that we, as Paul uh, talks about in Romans, that we should sin so that grace can abound. Uh, we should not sin. We are called to stay away from sin. But despite our sins, sometimes even through our very sins, God accomplishes his great and perfect will. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this day that you've given us. We Think about fathers on this day. Um, we get examples in Scripture of good fathers and bad fathers. And uh, we know that this uh, story, though it's difficult and uh, unpleasant, but it, it shows us who you are, where, where Jesus came from, and what we are. I thank you so much for the gift of your word. I thank you so much for speaking to us through people both long ago and very currently who have studied your word and commented on it and allowed us to understand it even better. Um, I pray that your word would live in our hearts, that you would learn, that we would learn what you have to teach us through your word. Lord, we love you and uh, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus, and we pray all these things in his name. Amen.